And everyone said, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't it great that Jesus rose from the dead? We are uh, a church that likes to talk about Jesus. We believe that we are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, and we talk about his life, we talk about his death, his burial, his resurrection, but especially on a day like this, we are going to talk about that resurrection because 2,000 years ago, the tomb was empty. Amen? And so, I don't know uh, why you're here today. Um, Many, many, many of you are here because you are a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Some are here because maybe you're investigating what this Christian uh, thing is all about. And um, I'm glad you're here because we're going to talk about the resurrection and what it means for our lives. Now, suppose you're, you're sitting at home one evening, sitting on the couch with your spouse, and you're watching television, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. And you go to the door and you kind of crack it open because you're wondering who in the world's coming this late in the evening. And what you see when you crack open the door is a couple of guys and they're holding a gigantic check that says Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes Winner. And behind them are a ton of cameras and a ton of lights. Now, these two cats that are holding the check say, in this moment, on this day, you have just become richer than you have ever been in your life. You're going to live on money that is being given to you that you did not earn. It's going to be given to you for the rest of your life. What is your first response? Well, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we would have said, yahoo! But, you know, we live in a world of sophisticated scams, right? And so you begin to, to theorize a little bit about, about what's going on here. And you think, as your mind is quickly going through all the different theories that are possible, you know, this did not come to me as some kind of an obscure email from some unknown prince in Nigeria. This did not come as a robot call from some number out of Timbuktu. This did not come to me as a text message from a number I don't recognize that has kind of a weird link in it. And you know, the cameras look a little legit. And the lights look a little legit. And the people, they look legit. And that check really looks legit. And you begin to think to yourself, you know, the prize is just so great that I feel sort of compelled to investigate. The the, the payoff is so wonderful that I just feel like I need to look into it. And so you open the door just a little bit wider. In a manner of speaking, that is what the resurrection of Jesus, what we think about today on Easter, this is what it sounds like and looks like to a lot of people, and they're skeptical. They're skeptical. And they ask the question, should I open the door a little bit wider when it comes to the Christian faith? But think for a moment about what it is that the resurrection says. What it is that the resurrection offers. It's about life with a body that never ages. That sounds pretty good, right? It never ages. It remains perfect. You know what that means? Nobody dies. How great is that? It's about life in a world where nothing evil, nothing wicked ever comes your way. I mean, think about the war that's happening in Eastern Europe right now. Something like that can't even be imagined 
in the world to come. Nothing evil comes our way. The shootings that have happened in our country over the last week or so, those kinds of things, are not. there's not even a cent of that in the world to come. And think about, think about doctors. In the world to come, there are not going to be any doctors because nobody ever gets sick. In the world to come, there's not going to be any police officers because there's not any crimes that are being committed. In the world to come, there are not going to be any lawyers because they're not going to be needed. And guess what? In the world to come, there are no preachers. I'm out of a job because there's no such thing as sin. Maybe I'll just spend that time becoming a better drummer. I don't know. The resurrection says it's about life with loved ones that never ceases. You never say goodbye in heaven. It's about a life that never ceases to be amazing. I mean, just think about that just for a moment. That every day you live, I mean, every once in a while we get up in the morning, we got a case of the ordinaries, right? That doesn't happen in the world to come. Each day is going to be so spectacularly inspiring. I mean, you're just going to be filled up with the greatness of the day. That's the world to come. And most importantly, it's a never-ending life with God and all of His beauty and all of His love. You know what that means? That means that you are going to be so saturated with the love of God that your being cannot take in one more drop of love. Can you imagine a life like that? That you are so overcome by the beauty of the presence of God. It's like a blue sky in South Texas in the spring that is so blue it makes your eyes water. The beauty of God. You know, the resurrection of Jesus does not say that that's a possibility. The resurrection of Jesus says that is what's coming. The resurrection of Jesus says that that is the future. Amen? Now, when we talk about the future that way, there's a lot of people, especially those that are kind of struggling with the, the feasibility and the viability and you know just the truthfulness, the veracity of the resurrection. They want to say, it's just too good to be true. And we say it is too good to be true, except that the resurrection of Jesus says it's true. And that's why the resurrection is so important. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. And up here on the screen, we're going to use this statement right here as our, our outline. And there's an insert in the bulletin. If you want to use it, you can fill in the blanks as we go along. But this is going to be our outline. When it comes to the resurrection, this is what we believe. A man by the name of Jesus precisely predicted with detail... His public, it wasn't done in a hidden kind of a way, it wasn't done in some obscure place, but his public death, burial, and resurrection, and a multitude of witnesses said it all came true. That's our outline this morning. I'll say it again. A man by the name of Jesus precisely predicted his public death, burial, and resurrection, and a multitude of witnesses said that it all came true. Let's begin with his death. When it comes to the death of Jesus, Jesus predicted his cruel and unlikely death. Two key words right there, cruel and unlikely. There are four books in the beginning of the Christian scriptures that we call Gospels, and they're basically the story or a description of the teaching and the life of Jesus. 
There are four of these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The second one, Mark, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, in three consecutive chapters, Jesus begins to take his disciples aside and he begins to teach them that he is going to be rejected by the the Jewish elites. He is going to be handed over to the Roman occupiers and then he's going to be executed. And so, for instance, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus in in the region of Caesarea Philippi says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That Jesus, that his, at the end of his life on earth, he's going to suffer many things, and he is going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, the elites of their culture, and that he must be killed, which means that he's going to die, and after three days, he's going to rise again. In another of these Gospels, the first one, the one that we call Matthew, Jesus specifically says that it's going to be death on a cross. So in Matthew chapter 20, he says, you know, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, which is death on a cross. But on the third day, he's going to be raised to life. Now, what is important to understand is that Jesus is not predicting that he might be assassinated because he has this sense that, you know, the tide of public opinion and the culture is turning against him, and he just kind of feels like he's in danger. Now, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is predicting very precisely that he is going to be rejected by the Jews and the Gentiles, the Roman occupiers, which happened. That he is going to be tortured, he's going to suffer many things, which happened, and that he's going to die on the cross which happened, and it's so unlikely. The cross was the cruelest and the most brutal form of execution at that time in the world, and really at any time in the history of the world. In the Roman culture, people did not talk about crucifixion. They didn't talk about what it was like to die on the cross in polite company and in in polite circles. And they specifically didn't talk about it in front of the women and the children. And in the Roman world, I mean, Romans, Romans themselves could not or would not be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst. And Jesus is a man. He is going about healing people, which is a good thing, and he's teaching people. And, and you know, at, at, at one time, he, he's challenged. And, you know, they, they come up to him, the Jewish people come up to him, and they say, hey, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? which is always, you know, that you, even to this day, when you talk about paying taxes, and, you know, this, tomorrow's tax day, right? You know, it gets the blood kind of going. And what is it that Jesus said? Render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, meaning that if you've got to pay taxes, pay taxes. So he went around, he's healing people, he's doing good. He predicted that he would die by crucifixion, which was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst, And even the Roman governor, the fellow by the name of Pilate, who is the Roman lead in that part of the Mediterranean world, you know, has a wife. And the wife comes to him as Jesus is being brought to him to be crucified by the Jews. His wife says to him, I had a dream about this guy. had nothing to do with this good man. And Pilate, after he spends time with Jesus, in Luke chapter 23, he says, I find no basis. I find no basis for a charge against this man. There is no reason 
for this guy, this, this man, this particular citizen, this, this individual to be crucified. And yet the political intrigue, as you know, the story kind of continues and Pilate gets pushed and then it becomes a kind of a tug of war. And in the end, Pilate decides that Jesus has to be flogged and he hands him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And one of the things that's just so really striking in the Gospels as, as you read this is to see how Jesus passively accepts what it is that's happening to him. That he's not, he's not trying to fight it. He, this, is, this is so unlikely and it's so unjust. And yet, in fulfillment of, of a prophecy out of Isaiah, you know, he, like a sheep being led to slaughter, he does not open his mouth. He knows and has predicted and has told and prepared his disciples that he is going to fulfill another part of that ancient prophecy out of Isaiah 53 and verse 5 that says that he was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, he was going to be crucified for our transgressions. Jesus' death. He predicted that it would be a cruel and unlikely death on the cross, which now leads us to the burial. Jesus is not just predicting that he's going to be crucified, but Jesus is saying very point blank. He's predicting that he is really going to die. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He emphasizes it, emphasizes it, emphasizes he's going to be killed, he's going to be killed, he's going to be killed on the third day. He's going to be raised to newness of life, but first he has to die. He is arrested on Thursday. Things are speeding right along by Friday evening, late afternoon. He's dead. Everybody is surprised. And a rich man from the area that we know of, uh, just north of Jerusalem, the area known as Ramallah, there is a man by the name of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, that comes for the body of Jesus. He goes to Pilate, asks for the body as he, after he has died on the cross. There's another Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus who brings about 75 pounds of spices to embalm the body of Jesus. They place the body of Jesus in a tomb that has never been used. There's a quarry in that area. Uh, there was a, a particular part of that quarry that the Arimathea, uh, that the Joseph of Arimathea's family owned, and it had been used, never been used as a tomb. And they placed the body of Jesus in that tomb. And there the body of the dead Jesus of Nazareth lies just as he predicted. Now, why does he keep saying the three days, the three days, the three days? The three days is important because it was thought in, in that part of the world that the spirit of a body would remain near that body, would hover around that body for about three days. But after three days, it would depart and the death would be irreversible. In other words, someone dead for three days is really dead. There's no arguing. Nobody Nobody would argue that Jesus maybe just kind of passed out from the crucifixion and the beating, that he just fainted. Not after three days. And Jesus told his disciples in no uncertain terms that he would really be crucified and that he would really die on that cross. And the Roman soldiers, who were experts at death, they recognized death when they saw it, and they themselves are surprised. Jesus is dead. Which then leads us to that third part, after three days of resurrection. Jesus predicted that he would be dead. He also predicted that he would not stay dead. 
I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die and be buried for three days. But on the third day, I'm going to be resurrected. Jesus taught that he would be resurrected. Everybody that heard him knew exactly what he meant. When he said resurrection, nobody confused that with resuscitation, that, you know, that he was going to hit death and bounce back into this life. When he said resurrection, everybody knew what he was talking about, that he was going to hit death, push through to the other side where death could no longer touch him. Nobody really believed it, although there was this vague idea of a resurrection of all people at the end of time. But his followers assumed that Jesus would do what everyone who ever died would do. Stay dead. The dead stay dead. Say it with me. The dead stay dead. And then the third day of death becomes the first day of resurrection life. Which now brings us to the, the witnesses. The doubters became disciples. On the first day of the week, depending on which of the Gospels you're reading, because they, they are describing the different angles of what's happening on that, that first Sunday, that, that first day of resurrection, on the first day of the week, Mary or the women together in Luke 24, they go to the tomb. Why are they going to the tomb on, on that first day of the week? Why, why would they go? Because that's where the dead Jesus is. They assumed that Jesus was still going to be in the tomb because the dead stay dead. They're taking the, the, the spices for the dead body. Why? It's because the dead stay dead. Or do they? Mary sees as she comes up on the tomb where Jesus has been laid. This, this tomb, you know, never been used before. Jesus is in there by himself. A stone has been rolled in front of it. It's been sealed. And Mary sees that the large stone in front of Jesus' tomb is moved. And she sprints to the disciples who do not believe her. They just think that this is absolute nonsense. Except for Peter and John. Peter and John, who is the beloved disciple in John's gospel, hearing her news about the stone and all of that, they run to the tomb. And in John chapter 20, we read that Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw, now I underline this word saw, because it's not the typical word for seeing that we find in the Greek language, which is the word blepo. It's a different word altogether. It's the word thereo, where we get the word theory, or to theorize as a verb so he is beginning to think and he's going through the theories and he's wondering in his mind what could it be what could it be he sees the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside he saw and he believed John believes but Peter is still going through all the theories in his mind. And in Luke chapter 24, Peter goes away wondering to himself what happened. Now nobody is leaving the tomb at that point, even though they see it, it's empty. They're still trying to make sense of it, but nobody is, is running from the tomb going, Resurrection! 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 Nobody does that. Peter is a doubter. He went away wondering to himself, what had happened, and yet no one has seen Jesus until Jesus decides to show himself to Mary. 
Mary, we read, goes back to the empty tomb. She's grieving. She's weeping her eyes out. And she, she's crying for Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection just doesn't fit any of her categories for life. In her mind, the dead stay dead. The dead stay dead. That's why you go to the tomb, because the dead stay dead. And then there's a voice, and the voice in John 20 says, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus, and she says, You know, they've taken his body. Why? Because he's dead, and they can. They've taken his body away I, I don't know where it is. And then the voice says, Mary. And that she recognizes. She recognizes it is Jesus. And this Mary has just had all her categories shifted because of the resurrection. And she sees Jesus alive. A little later, the disciples are in hiding because Jesus is dead. And they know how things work in the ancient world, that if, if the leader of a movement is killed, then after he's killed, the movement itself, the followers of that leader, are going to be killed. And so they're in hiding. They're scared to death. And they believe that, that Jesus is dead because the dead stay dead. And it's here that Jesus shows up. And in Luke chapter 24, they were startled and they were frightened when they see Jesus because they're thinking that they see a ghost. Why do they think they see a ghost? Because he's, they, the dead stay dead. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands. What was in his hands? Holes. And, and my feet, he shows them his feet, and what do they see? They see the holes. It is I myself, not a ghost. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and blood, or flesh and bones, as you see that I have. You know, another piece of this that we don't always talk about, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 28, the big Great Commission passage, right? Jesus shows them a mountain up in northern Galilee, and they meet him. And notice what Matthew records. This is after they've had interaction with Jesus, and they see that he's not a ghost. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but also something else. But some doubted even after all this time still trying to make it make sense let me let me stop there and just say this here's 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 the crazy thing if you were writing these things down in the first century number one you would not use women as a witness it was during a period of time in the world in which a, a woman's testimony would not be counted as valid in a court. If you were trying to write down a, you know, the facts of a movement and trying to, to get that movement some traction in the world, you would not have the very first person that witnessed this particular piece of the puzzle. It would not be a woman, especially a woman like Mary Magdalene. 
I mean, Mary Magdalene at one point had seven demons in her, which me, and she was healed by all of that, and that's why she is devoted to Christ. He gave her her life back. But because of the demons and because of the life that she lived possessed like that, she had been marginalized. She was on the edge of her culture. She is not an elite. She is not somebody with a say or a word or with any kind of social cachet about her. Even of the group of people that would not be counted on for being a, a true bona fide witness, she is the worst of the worst. The second thing is if you're writing down something and you're trying to get it, give it some traction, you would not record the doubts and the confusions of the principal leaders. You wouldn't start off the story with, you know, this thing happened and nobody believed it. Even the guys that are preaching to you right now, they had trouble at first. In the ancient world, this is not how things would have been written down. Nobody would believe it, so why write it down that way 2,000 years ago? There's only one reason. That's the way it happened. That's the way it happened. Fifty days later, on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost, some ten days after Jesus has gone back to heaven to be with the Father, the church is launched, and Peter, who is wondering and doubting himself, preaches the very first sermon. And there is a transition that has happened in Peter. He says, fellow Israelites there, you know, in, in Jerusalem, there at the temple. He says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, this is King David, died. And was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to an event. Not a philosophy, not an ideology, not a politic, but to an event, a fact in history. That Jesus died, was buried, and we have seen with our own eyes that he was resurrected from the dead. And on that day, the church begins with 3,000 people who are baptized into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And some years later, as the church begins to spread because of the preaching of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the church is now out into the, you know, the, the known parts of the world. And in this one letter that Paul writes to a church in the area of, in the city of Corinth, the 15th chapter is one in which he really goes to town. He really has so much to say about the greatness of the resurrection. But he says this, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that that was according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be really dead, and that he would be raised on the third day, a resurrection, according to the Scripture. And then he says, and he appeared to Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Peter, to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 people and brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living. 
Basically, you could go to one of those 500 and say, hey, I understand you were there and you saw the resurrected Jesus. You knew that he died, right? And he was buried, right? And did he really resurrect? You saw that? And they would say, yes, it sounds crazy, but it's true. It happened. Then he appeared to James, his brother. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Two last things to think about, and we're done. The first, just a couple of things to consider, and it's this. We have the teachings of Jesus because of his resurrection. You, you know, why, why do we know the story of the Good Samaritan? Why do we know the story of the wise man, the parable, the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man built his house on the sand? Why do we even know about the golden rule? Why do we know any of these stories that have been taught to us about Jesus? It's because of the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, if he's still in the tomb, then there's no reason to publish any of this, is there? That's, that's one of the things that in the book Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis was getting at. And in the book Mere Christianity, he writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, and it's this that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, that he's a good teacher, they had wise things to say, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. Because of the resurrection, we have these teachings. Because Jesus came back from the dead, we have these teachings. And the second thing is this. Why would the early church leaders suffer and die for a hoax if they knew it was not true? I mean, you go so far, right? You can hold out because you think you're getting some, some political clout. You've got something maybe financial that's going your way. But to the point that they suffered and died, in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is saying, yes, the resurrection is true. And he says, but guess what? You're going, you're going to suffer for a little while. And, and Peter did not separate suffering from the presence of God. He did not think because they were suffering there was the absence of God. Why would they go and die for a cause if they knew it was a lie unless they had seen with their own eyes and had touched with their own hands and had experienced with their own life the resurrected Jesus. And that's the question that all of us have to answer at some point in our life. Is, is the resurrection true? Yes, Jesus. We know, what the, we know about the death, the burial, and resurrection but what about the witnesses, the 500 at one time that said, yes, we were there, we saw it. They were still alive. You could actually go to their village and find them and ask them and talk to them about it. It wasn't something that could be hidden. There were 500 people at one time that saw this. There were these leaders that went throughout the world. They suffered all kinds of things because it was true. What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus? What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Remember, the resurrection of Jesus talks about a life in which that God-shaped hole in your heart is filled by God himself. 
and your life overflows with the joy and the peace and the love to the point that your life can experience no more because you're completely saturated with it. And if you have some questions, if you want to investigate further, that's why we're here, is to talk about it. And we'd love to answer those questions this morning for anyone who has questions about the resurrection of Jesus and the sense that it makes and what it means and how to connect to to God in a way that you become his child forever and ever. And if that describes you this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we sing together.